Welcome everyone to our June Resilience Think Tank. I'm really glad to have you here. The reason that I picked the topic that I did this week is because as leaders, we often have to deal with a situation that presents as a problem to be solved. And we often have a lot of experience and feel a fair amount of confidence and competence in solving discrete problems. But one of the places in my work that I have found that people are especially stressed is when they have to approach a situation. It can't be, they can't wait to see how it turns out. They have to take a leadership role when the situation is still evolving. As a matter of fact, I would argue that almost every situation is still evolving. And so there's no such thing as a discrete problem except on math. That being said, there are situations in which we understand the parameters, the problem presents itself. There's a flood in your office. You know, we've had this happen in my health center that a sewage pipe burst. That is a discrete problem, even while it's an evolving situation. And so that is a situation where you know the problem and you, then you take steps. So often we are in a situation where the parameters are changing, the problem is evolving, but we can't leave it be and see how it turns out before we start to approach it. That's why today what we're talking about is navigating problems that are still uncertain. I would like to welcome my guests, and I'm going to start by introducing you to Samantha Gerard. Samantha was the first postgraduate fellow at Carnegie Mellon University's Institute for Social Innovation. She conducted extensive research on where sex ed was missing the mark in schools. She then designed an alternative approach based on what she'd learned. And she's now the creator and CEO of Talk, the new sex ed, which serves thousands of students each year and growing. Sam, welcome. And what's something that you have noticed most about people you work with when you have to ask them to live with some uncertainty around an obstacle or an outcome? Uh, usually it's that first deer in the headlights look like, what is this person asking me to do now? And I'm thinking of it two ways, Debbie. I'm thinking about the parents that I've worked with over the years who are trying to anticipate kind of what kinds of situations might come up with their children that they have to emotionally guide them through. I'm also thinking of kind of um, my staff people when I'm like, yeah, we're going to build this great new feature for the platform. And they're like, okay, crazy. <laughs> like how, how exactly is it that we're going to get from point A to point B? Um, so usually it's that first, like, that's the thing that I perceive the most. I, I've tried to get as gentle as I can over time, but I do sometimes that the, usually the first thing that flashes on my radar is that shock surprise. Ha ha, where are we going now? And that's a really good point because I think as creators, we often introduce uncertainty. It's like, we think of it as part of our charm. It's very <laughs> possible that other people do not think of it as part of our charm. <laughs> Which brings me, I think, pretty naturally to Waira Engel. Waira is an entrepreneur, consultant, and advisor who's most recently co-founded the Entrepreneur Brotherhood, a peer support community for successful entrepreneurs and founders. He has overcome addiction, depression, anxiety, crime, and multiple failed ventures before eventually building two multiple seven-figure businesses. Where uh, I would imagine you have introduced a lot of uncertainty into all of your work, and now you work with entrepreneurs who do the same. Can you tell me something that you have noticed most about people at work when they have to navigate uncertainty? 
Yeah, I'd, I'd say, I mean, it really depends on the amount of uncertainty, a, a little bit of or medium amount of uncertainty is a standard day for an entrepreneur, a leader, and, and a lot uh, tends to really trigger our survival responses, our fight, flight, or freeze. And uh, I think what I've noticed most is that the most difficult part of managing uncertainty is rarely the external situation itself. It's more our internal reaction to the situation and that um, most people don't have the emotional awareness or mastery to deal with the intense fear and uh, anxiety and apathy and anger and all of those uh, emotional subconscious cocktail that um, that can come up. And that and if, when faced with a lot of uncertainty, if we don't have healthy strategies in place, um, I've seen a lot of entrepreneurs turn to you know, whatever coping or soothing mechanism uh, they're used to, whether that's alcohol or, or drugs or um, Netflix, pornography, food, um, you know, pick your pick your vice. Yeah, that's an excellent point that it's an, an issue of both emotional awareness and self-regulation and having strategies for that that aren't damaging. Corey, as both an athlete and a journalist, I would imagine that you've experienced those things too. Let me introduce everyone to you. Corey Robinson is an NBC sports host and reporter. He's a former Notre Dame wide receiver. He joined NBC Sports in January of 2020 and has worked the past two Olympic games, serving first in Tokyo and then in Beijing. Corey, given all that, what have you noticed about when people you work with have to navigate uncertainty? Well, first of all, I'm happy to be here with everybody. Thank you, Dr. G, for inviting me. Um, yeah, I think I can't really speak for other people, but for me, what's so fascinating as a reporter is you have a game plan and then something happens. And then it goes out the window. I mean, there have been plenty of times where I have all my, my questions. I'm ready to go. I'm already, you know, I, they're so clever. And I'm like, oh, in the second quarter, this happened. Or, you know, in the third end, this happened. And then something crazy happens that completely opens my, my line of questioning. And then I have to, as the athlete is coming or as the coach is coming to me at halftime, I have to just destroy everything that I worked on and ask the obvious question of, wait a second, what did you just say to your, co your, your coach? Or what did you say to your player? Or what happened at that last call? Like, why was, you know, why was that call missed? Or why did you make that decision there? And that's when um, you find, I think it separates, um, it really separates people in the business because if you can relax and trust your training and realize that it's all fluid, you know, it's just, it's fluid, you have to be in the moment and you have to be present. And to do that, you have to trust that you are equipped to handle the situation as it comes, even though you don't know what the situation is. You know, I think President Eisenhower said something like, planning is, a, um, is essential, but like plans are useless. <laughs> That's kind of my life is I have to plan a lot, but all the plans always go out the window because the game dictates the action and the game dictates the story. And I don't know what the story is going to be until they, they actually snap the ball or actually play the game. And I like that quote. I'm going to look that up. Okay. So let's dive a little deeper. While you're at, I'd like to come back to you and ask you, could you give us an example of uncertainty that you have faced in your work mission and how you approach that uncertainty? So not you bringing other people uncertainty, but it happened to you. You know, I'll, I'll actually just share a little bit about where we're at right now um, with the growth of the Entrepreneur Brotherhood. Um, you know, we've built a, a great product and we've got a, a great loyal uh, customer base. Um, but we've really struggled to take our offer to the broader market and find our product market fit and find the right words to describe what we do. And uh, I honestly, I don't know if it's going to scale or by how much or you know what it will actually take to get it there right now. A lot is uh, very uncertain. And 
my old operating system for dealing with uncertainty was, you know, when I get the outcome that I want, I'm happy. When I don't get the outcome that I want, I'm sad. And when I don't know what the outcome I'm going to get is, then I'm uncertain and I'm, I've experienced a lot of stress and anxiety. Uh, and that led me to a lot of like burnout and fatigue and actually got really sick uh, hormonally for a while from, from dealing with my uncertainty that way. Um, and what I realized was this was really happening because uh, I was using my business as a mechanism to fill a void that I felt inside. And I was really personally attached to Is the that results bad? that I was getting. <laughs> well, re regardless, I was like, I cared so much about the, the result that I got. When I get the outcome I want, it means that I'm successful or good enough or worthy, or I did it. And when I don't, it means the opposite. Um, and, and that caused so much uh, emotional turmoil for me. And um, so my new operating system that I'm, I'm working on, and it's a, a moment by moment, day by day practice is, look, I don't actually need anything from my business to be happy or, or feel good enough because I'm, I'm working on disconnecting my, my self-worth and my, my personal value from um, the results of my business or the success or productivity uh, of my business. Um, and so, yeah, when that's really true, there's like a lot more spaciousness and, and I get to just show up and play and, and the uncertainty doesn't mean as much anymore. So that, that's the reframe that I've been working with that's been, been helping me a lot these days. That is a big deal. That really is such a powerful idea. I'm just sort of, I mean, I feel a little confronted personally. <laughs> and I thank you for that. Because this idea of where does our value and our worth come from and ingrain in think from probably the pilgrims, right? Ingrained in our society is this idea that your value comes from your productivity and your work and like raising, you know, I, I want to have a good work ethic. And I do think that's a reasonable thing to do because for me, that means being trustworthy. But I don't want to create uh, my own Frankenstein and then give it the power to take away my self-worth. So as an entrepreneur myself, that really speaks to me. I, everybody who's here with us today, I am looking down and taking tons of notes. And I wonder if you're also taking notes. And I'd like to encourage you, as questions come to you, drop them in the chat because in just about 10 minutes, we're going to stop and start taking questions. And we really want to hear from you. So please put those in the chat or write them down and we'll get to them. Okay. So, Corey, you have been in, as far as from what I know about you, at least two different professions where how you do is directly tied to both your identity and your self-worth. You and I met on, at a mental health and athlete event, a conference. And we spent a lot of time there talking about having your identity so tied to what you do, especially when what you do can be so quickly stopped by an injury that's out of your control, can be damaging and dangerous. So I'm, I, I know that you've given this some thought. I wondered if you could talk about an example of uncertainty you face in either or both of your professions and how you've approached that. Well, I think it goes back to my training. My undergraduate training was in something we call the program of liberal studies, which is based off of the great books program at UChicago. 
essentially you read every um, great book in the Western tradition, and then there's just like one random semester where you read like all the Eastern texts, like the Bhagavad Gita and Lao Tzu and Confucius and like Tolstoy. It's just like this one one semester, but everything else Tolstoy, is like Aristotle, Tolstoy Plato. Tolstoy plus a bunch of other things. That must have been simple. Yeah, it was, it, was very, it, was, yeah it, was very, it was very Notre Dame. So I'd be like sitting there drinking, uh, you know, like coffee, and then I'd like be reading Plato, and then I'd go play football, and then I'd go like watch a play. It was very, very cinematic. But anyways, um, one thing that I learned in that in that undergraduate training was you, you basically once you speak, um, you can't add anything else. So it was very hard for me, like hearing all these 18 year old kids who had you know, myself included very little life experience criticizing Achilles in the Iliad. It's like this guy is like if you're an athlete, Achilles is the guy. He's like the best athlete of all time, right? You know, he's one of the he's the growth, he's the goat, he's the greatest of all time in that like athlete world, if you will. And everyone was just saying, oh, he sucks, or he's so selfish, or he should have fought earlier, or why did you do this? And then you realize that Achilles can't Achilles can't speak. Like it's done. Like he did what he did and it's over. And then in my life right now, it's so funny because when I interview people or I think about what's the legacy of Tom Brady or what's the legacy of Joe Montana or what's the legacy of like Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, it's the same thing. Like they can't get back on the field and or court and play anymore. It's done. And then I'm in a bar somewhere in New York and they're just arguing Kareem is maybe, you know, is he the GOAT or is LeBron the GOAT or is Michael the GOAT? You know, it's like it's the same conversation we had as 18 year olds. And I realized that like that's the like the essence of uncertainty with greatness. And all you can do is just focus on the day to day the practice and the craft. So that's where I think like that undergraduate training has taught me, why would you fight and spend your life fighting for like this immortal shadow? It's just a shade. And I don't wanna like live a life, like, you know, six decades of my life dedicated to something. So, you know, hundreds of years from now, some guys in, you know, Astoria are gonna be arguing about my legacy over a pint. <laughs> that's, that's like, that's not even like worth it. <laughs> you know, that's not even worth the greatness. It's just a shade. So I just want to focus on the craft and the discipline of showing up every day and and um, and being present and letting that presence speak. Because once I once I finish speaking, there's nothing else I can add. Okay. So what I'm hearing you say, I think, and I want you to tell me if I've got it wrong, is that the strategy that you've brought to bear on all the uncertainty is controlling the things you can control, which is building your craft and controlling your discipline towards your goal. Is that right? Yeah, just like eating and drinking and being happy and finding joy in what my work is, because at the end of the day, I think legacy is a non-starter. I think a lot of people focus on legacy, but it's just it's fool's gold. And as someone like, you know, my dad played in the NBA. He's a Hall of Famer. He went to the Olympics, you know, part of the dream team. I grew up around Hall of Famers. And then now in my job, I like interview Olympic gold medalists all the time. And like being around people who've devoted their life to something for greatness and have become the 1% of the 1%, you realize that, you know, like it's legacy is, it's it's fool's gold, it's fake, there's nothing there. Um, and that's what I mean is it's just like, it's very funny that people spend their whole lives trying to be that. And then you talk to those people and you realize there's nothing there. Um, it's just like, <laughs> it's just, so that's why there has to be something else. And I think that's what I mean yeah. is just in, enjoy that moment, enjoy the discipline and realize that they're gonna, 18 year old kids are going to argue about whether, you know, your life sucked or not in some college classroom hundreds of years from now, maybe if you're lucky and that's what you're fighting for. So just like have fun and like, you know, love your family and be there for your kids and like, you know, like follow your God, like that kind of stuff. That's the important, that's the meat of life. That's excellent. 
Samantha, you spend a lot of your time thinking about and working with people younger than 18. And I noticed that when you were talking about helping people overcome uncertainty, you mentioned parents, you mentioned your coworkers, you didn't really mention the students. Did, do, has it been your experience? And I want you to say whatever you want to say, but this just brought me to this question. Has it been your experience that teenagers know some stuff about navigating uncertainty because they have to do it all the time or whatever that as adults we've forgotten? And I don't want to get too meta on you, but yes. And I was just contemplating that as the other two gentlemen were talking. So I, it's almost like uncertainty is so baked into what I do. I almost feel like it doesn't even occur to me anymore. So I, the way that I approach it first, I would say I am completely and totally enmeshed with my work still. I have not yet been able to se separate my self-worth from, <laughs> you know, the success of my business. I also- but life goals, right? <laughs> but at the, but at the same time, I, but somehow I feel like I've made it work for me. So I, I, I almost feel like my work is a calling. I also like, I was thinking as you were talking, Corey, I was like, wow, maybe I should think about a legacy or something. Like it didn't even occur to me, like, what is the mark that I'm having just because I get it reflected back to me so often. It's almost like I'm getting feedback in real time in terms of the impact that, that my work is sometimes having on people. But um, in terms of how I approach it these days, I mean, where I started out, I built this lightning in a bottle, amazing school-based model that is very difficult to scale and very expensive to scale. So then it was kind of like recalibrating and figuring out um, how do I take this amazing thing that I did and figure out what are the essential elements and then how do I bring it to more people? So in terms of that, I also had some experience early on and they weren't quite teenagers, Debbie. They were more like, um, college age students, leading them through, I feel like I learned a couple of lessons early on. The first one was um, sometimes you can do everything right and uh, you still fail. So sometimes you can literally do every single thing that ensures success and the outcome is not the one that you wanted. And you just need to, if you're going to be an entrepreneur, you need to get really comfortable with that. And I almost take failure one as a given. I'm going to fail lots. I don't like to think of it as failure. I think about it as iterating. And I also think we make the path by working it and walking it. And I do think that what you said about teenagers, yes, they definitely do know something that they're not attached to outcomes. They're just kind of moving through. They expect the uncertainty. I, I feel like there's something about the world kind of like as we go through it, that some of that get that natural, uh, just moving through with gusto with no you know, concern about what might be coming their way, living in the moment um, that they have a bit of that. Maybe it's partially that teenagers have less of an expectation, no less of a desire, but less of an expectation of control. Totally. Yeah. Like as, as adults, we have this false, I think, expectation that a lot of things are under our control or should yeah. be, or we yeah. should act as if they are and make it happen. And yeah. teenagers, they know that they have all the best ideas and they often know everything, but that so often teachers, parents, uh, foster system, bosses, coaches, take that stuff out of their control and it gets messed up even though they knew how to do it right at somebody's request. And they find the flexibility within it, right? To make it work for them. Yeah. yeah. And so I wonder if our expectation of control is one of the things that makes uncertainty much more stressful. As I mentioned at the beginning that like when I don't know the outcome, that's when the, the stress is even harder than when I know for sure it's a bad outcome. No, no, no. Exactly, exactly that. Because when I don't know the outcome, but I think that I can control it, that's what creates the stress for me. 
my yeah. experience. But when, like you said, I take that uncertainty as a given and actually look forward to that because that's going to bring me the, I think the most growth and the most learning about myself, um, that, that becomes like a gift in itself. Okay. So our first question that we have from the audience, I think fits in nicely right here. So how do you deal with freezing? Like Waira, you talked about how we can have those stress reactions, uh, fight, flight, freeze. And I will just mention also faith, right? Like that's the, the fourth act is the one we're usually aiming for. We can either run away or fight against it or freeze up or face it. But that facing it takes a lot of self-regulation and effort. So this question is, how do you deal with freezing when you're faced with uncertainty? What do you recommend to keep moving instead of postponing, starting, or dealing with it? So will you start with that one, where? Yeah. So for me, one of the tools that, that I really love is really anything that's going to shift my state. And my go-to is breath work. So if I can have the awareness that, okay, I'm freezing, some, I'm feeling overwhelmed, something's coming up for me that's causing me to freeze, my mind is spinning, I'm kind of going into that, that energy, um, been able to build the awareness to recognize that, um, which is a whole other challenge in itself. Um, but my go-to is, is breath work, five, 10, 20 minutes of sitting down and breathing uh, resets my nervous system and, and my perspective, my emotional state, everything shifts and I can handle that, that situation. Um, so much more effectively. So uh, that's that's my my kind of go-to these days. And I, I would also just want to, this is, I was thinking my first thought was breath too, which is awesome that we're on the same page. And then the other thing I would think too, from a sports perspective, you have two different types of like um, treatment. You have acute treatment, which is like, you know, I hurt myself and you're like, oh, well, like I, I need to like, I need to deal with this, this ACL tear. That's like, okay, acute versus like preventative. And I think the preventative treatment, if you want to like figure out how to do preventative rehab with freezing, it's in sports, whenever you're like, it's fourth and long under the lights, 100,000 people are like, you know, cheering or booing you and you have to get score a touchdown or like Michigan wins. Like in those instances, you <laughs> the worst rely. thing possible. I'm hearing that is the worst <laughs> possible outcome. Got it. Okay. But, but it's like, you have to rely on your training and like what your body does is it's like, it always goes back to what you know. And if your training is bad, then you're going to rely on these bad habits that are in your muscles. Like dancers talk about this. Like they sometimes dancers will do the same action over and over again to get that movement in their bodies. Like, cause they understand it's like literally like I'm putting it in my body. So that's one thing as I think in a freeze moment, preventative rehab would be do very good technique and get that in your body ahead of time. So when you do freeze, you, you just like your, your, your mind shuts down, but then your body does the right thing at that moment. Like, uh, like subconsciously. That muscle memory that you're talking about, you're right, absolutely, that it can live in our neurons also, in our brains. So you're talking about an athletic moment and we're talking about maybe in it, a business moment where somebody comes to you and says, hey, we just got fired by that client or our vendor can't deliver. And so it isn't a question of like, snap the ball like you've been trained, look where you've been trained, run the patterns you've practiced, but it is. Because it isn't not only in your biceps and your quads that that muscle memory lives, it can live in your brain as well. If you have thought to yourself, I recognize this feeling, this panicky feeling, which is, I don't mean to get too boring and sciencey, but it's your amygdala saying, don't die. This feels threatening. We could die. And so if you, every time you have that feeling of, oh no, this feels threatening, you can remember, I'm supposed to take a breath and think what choices do I have? 
And this is a recommendation I make to audiences all the time, that when your brain is frozen with its safety mechanisms of loss and distrust and discomfort, just trying to keep you alive. Like, don't do it. What could we lose? Don't move. Don't do anything. There's a really interesting study where um, if, if we were all sitting in a hotel ballroom right now that we'd never been in before and the fire alarm went off, research shows that 70% of people in the room will stay where they are. They'll look around, but they won't gather their belongings. They won't get up. They won't start to leave. And that if we pump the smell of burning smoke into the room, 50% of people would still stay sitting. That our brains are so nervous about making a move, they're so inclined to freeze that basically our brain's trying to convince us it's somehow more dangerous to gather our belongings and get up in a room full of strangers and walk out than it is to stay inside a structure fire. Like, it doesn't make any sense when you say it out loud, but it is how our brains work. So if you have practice that every time you feel like I should just freeze, you know that the next thing I do is take three very deep breaths and then think, what choices do I have? And those two things, if you practice it enough in training, it makes a big difference. And and Corey, both of you, when you mentioned breath, as soon as we ask ourselves what questions do we have, that turns on a part of our brain called the prefrontal cortex, which turns the amygdala down. It acts as a dampener. And then all those chemicals that the amygdala just pumped out that makes your heart beat fast or your spit dry up or your stomach feel awful, we clear them through our lungs and our kidneys. So all that advice we get about taking deep breaths and drinking some water actually gets rid of those stress chemicals, but it's really hard to remember that in the moment. So I appreciate that point that you've got to practice it ahead of time and, and every time that you can. Sam, somebody uh, asked in the chat, you mentioned, you said uncertainty is so ingrained in you. Can you talk a little bit more about that and say, how did you become aware of it and if it's a good thing, how do you do it? And if it's a bad thing, how do you avoid it? I think it's something that I've learned to thrive on. And I, I, I think it was a slow awareness over time. It's almost, it's letting go of control. And I think I have the benefit of spending a lot of time with teenagers and in it, in that you just kind of learn to sit back and, you know, they're throwing all kinds of different things at you at all times. Um, I'm happy to take a swing at that. I just wanted to ask you, Dr. G, um, my instinct is to move. Like when I get, the guy said breath work, when I freak out or freeze or panic and it's, it's infrequent and it's usually predictably in a pattern. Um, my instinct, actually I was taught this, is, is to actually get moving. Does that activate the breathing and the whatever? The worst thing that I can do when my amygdala is firing is actually to like sit and try to breathe. Like I would never be able to breathe through something like that. Like to me, my instinct, I'm one of, I'm not one of the ones that's sitting in the ballroom. I'm like, I'm moving, we're going. <laughs> like, it's like the, the four alarm fire. It's like, we're out. <laughs> you know what I mean? Your friends text you and they're like, it was a false alarm. And you're like, really? I'm in Chicago all that time. <laughs> it was nice to see you. <laughs> like, I just went yeah. home. So yeah. it'd be, I'm interested from an epigenetic way of like what happened in your family background that for you flight actually feels safer, but Anything that you do, you know, people have all kinds of positive coping mechanisms in those situations. Like they say, I go for a walk, or I step outside, or I listen to music, or I sniff my coffee. Anything that changes your breathing, changes your breathing, that's the key. So if you're somebody who like always takes deep breaths, that's just, you know, you're that kind of a person. And when confronted with, you know, a car racing towards you, you have to change how you're breathing to change your brain chemistry. And, and so that's a really good point that it isn't only freeze, 
but I do think that freeze is the thing people feel the most stuck by because they are quite literally stuck. Completely and totally makes sense to me. Can you ask me the tail half of that uncertainty question again? When did I become aware of it? How do you, was it, how do you work around it? Like how does one become aware of it? And it seems like you consider it a good thing. So what can you do to get into that mindset? I think I first became aware of it. Like when I started my business, I was 24. I was kind of like, I knew nothing. I was kind of like blindly tripping through the world and whatever. And basically everyone I encountered had more power than I did. So I think that kind of got me in the sense of, it's kind of like, you have to deal with what comes your way if you want to survive, because that's just the way it's going to be until you establish yourself as some kind of authority or serious force or your work is producing some kind of effect. I think that that was where the, the initial awareness kind of came from. It's kind of like, wow, I actually am the low power person in most of these interactions that I'm having. And so it, you have to be flexible. And if you're not flexible, it's probably not going to work out well. And then do you have the ability to like, let go of that and say, yes, this is an environment I can thrive in or no, this is terrible. I hate this. I think it cultivates both self-awareness and self-regulation if that makes sense. Like you have to be able to do that if you're going to decide to thrive in that kind of an environment. Yeah, I agree. Okay. So Waira, you work with so many entrepreneurs in your community. And I wondered if you would talk for a minute about the role of failure in our own self-awareness. You talked about the importance of emotional awareness and regulation. And can you talk about what you've seen failure do for people in terms of teaching them self-awareness, emotional awareness, any, and I don't just mean like, well, look for the silver lining. I mean, like what happens to people when they fail if they're willing to engage with them? Yeah. Awesome question. Um, I think, I think there's a few key elements. I mean, we're all going to fail inevitably you swing and, and you try something and you don't get the outcome that you want. And, and that's failure. Um, I think having reflection and feedback loops is so important. And that's a lot of the work that, that we do in the, the groups that we facilitate is actually just enabling like feedback loops and mirrors, um, through other people so that we can, we can see ourselves and we can talk through the, the retrospective of, know, what went well in this situation? What didn't go well? Um, what am I learning? What am I going to do differently next time? And um, I think that that entrepreneurs or people that engage in that learn to love the failure and see it as an opportunity for growth that put the right feedback loops in place so that they squeeze the the most juice out of those those failure experiences. Um, I mean, it just accelerates growth. It accelerates growth externally and what we're able to build. But what I've seen it do, and you know, I don't fully understand how or why this works yet. It's a question that we're we're engaging in. But what I've seen it do is is develop emotional awareness and self awareness. Like the the people that engage in that are able to see themselves and understand their own patterns and their own subconscious reactive patterns better, um, and they're able to overcome them in those fight, flight, or freeze situations. Um, now, does that make sense? It does make sense. And I think it's a really good, you, I heard a few strategies in what you said. I heard for ourselves that we need to not just be like, well, I failed, I guess I'll try again. We need some reflection and feedback loops for ourselves. But also as leaders in business, we, 
we're really missing a huge opportunity and we're really sort of setting ourselves up for a much slower progression if we don't build those processes in. I've tapped in other things about what I call when not if language and neurochemically there's this major advantage to saying to a gr any group of people when x bad thing happens we will do this as opposed to if x bad thing happens we will do this that our brain hears it differently they hear it as part of a plan with when as opposed to a real fork in the road and, and somebody messed up and brain goes to blame and accusation and resistance when we talk about it it can be the exact same thing so if we say when we lose a client, we will or we do uh, do an exit interview if we're able to talk as a group about, we journal about our recollections of our interactions with them, not looking for blame or accusation, but to understand patterns. I do this in my own businesses. We're booking, you know, we get a lot of inquiries to book events and to book consultations. And when something goes from cold inquiry, not us cold outgoing, but cold inquiry, someone we don't know at all, to completion, it's not everyone, right? We lose people along the process somewhere. Like they, they'll send an email and then we'll reach out to talk and they won't ever answer. Or, and so we're trying to determine how can we know when something's less likely to be worth our effort, to be successful, when they're, I'm not going to be the ideal person for them, or they're not going to be the ideal client for us. And that makes me personally, as, as a business leader, much less frustrated when we lose people in that process because I say, okay, what did we learn from this one? As opposed to, oh, we lost another one. Might have been perfect. What if it was amazing? What if it was a gajillion dollars or the coolest opportunity? And so I think a really important strategy there is to handle uncertainty by not just expecting it. Samantha, I really like that point. Expect uncertainty. Try and let go of some aspect of your belief in your own control, but also planning for our follow-up on uncertainty. And I think too, understanding like what your base needs are. It's like when you're screening clients, I do the same thing. It's like I have, in order for this to be beneficial, it's like two people coming together for hopefully a positive experience together, right? And so you have needs, I have needs. If our needs are in alignment, it's going to be great. The farther apart that we are, you know, you have to figure out how to carve the middle ground for what's going to make it worthwhile for both people, right? So to be able to hang on to, like, I need this parameter, that parameter, that parameter. If that's not there, I'm unable to participate. I'm going to pause us for one second yeah. because one of the things that I do when things are uncertain is I bake. And another thing I do is forget things in the oven. And I can tell by the smell that I've forgotten something in an on oven. Please hold. That is awesome. <laughs> I love it. What do you think she's baking? I don't know. Okay. It was meant to be lemon blueberry bread. It's looking a little well done, but I didn't burn the house down. Hi, everyone. Uh, but it's an interesting example of resilience. I want to talk for just a minute or two about some things that I've learned from all of you today. And there has been a lot. So I hope that folks will go back and watch the whole thing and take some of the strategies that, that mean the most to you. I really want to point out that what we heard at the very beginning from Samantha, that leaders, especially creative leaders, visionary leaders, are often in the situation of, especially from their team's point of view, causing the uncertainty, adding the uncertainty in. It's like a normal Tuesday, things seem to be fine, 
And here comes Samantha with an idea. Fantastic. So, or a way to make things better or a new success or, you know, what you're at, when, when you love your work, when you're invested in your work, you often think about it more than anyone else thinks about your work. Uh, you're thinking about it in the shower. You hear a podcast and think, oh, how could we use that? And, and often our teams, because they didn't have the, I, the spark of the idea themselves, they often feel a little shocked and somewhat put off by that. So I think there are some strategies there. I like what you implied, Samantha, that you just expect that. And then expecting it or maybe a little less put off by it, a little bit more accepting of it. Well, thank you for talking about owning using your business to fill a void and how that is not necessarily a great idea at all, that tying your self-worth and your own value to your business's success is not going to help us in the long run. Um, that the less we tie it, actually probably the more successful our work will be, but also the less damage the uncertainty can do to us. Corey, you started out by talking to me about uncertainty and saying something that I have heard before. You know, you can only control your effort, right? You didn't put it that way, but I've heard a lot of people say when things are uncertain, you can, and I've talked to my own kids as athletes about this. You can't, you can't control the team that shows up to play against you. You can control your teamwork, your communication, your training, your effort, your attitude, but you can't control if you win. And then you added that you can focus on your craft and that I thought was taking it sort of a step further. But the thing you added that I've never heard before is that you can control the joy you derive from your life. That that doesn't have to be uncertain. That from your work, from your family, from your spiritual practice, from whatever it is, you can control the amount of joy you derive and that that is a great strategy to use in the face of uncertainty. It feels a little aspirational and also <laughs> exactly where I want to be putting my energy. Well, no, I, I think joy is an inexhaustible resource. You know, if you're looking at an asset that you bring to the table, I don't think many people think or count joy as an asset. But for me, joy is an inexhaustible resource. And, it, it, you know, it's very important. And that might be the quote of the day. Joy is an inexhaustible resource. That's really true. And, and also, it, it asks a lot of us as leaders to remember that. Before we finish our time, I'd like to ask each of you a question. Uncertainty is almost always unsettling. And I know Sammy said it's really ingrained in you, so you might feel this less so. But when, but why you're pointed out, uncertainty is a part of so many of our lives at work, but it's the amount, right? It's our internal reaction and the amount that we're facing. And so maybe a whole bunch of uncertainty in one situation makes sense, but then you're the accountant for your business calls and it's a whole other level of uncertainty. Or you're asked to cover, you know, Corey, I, I don't know how much you know about, I know you know a lot about curling and a lot about basketball and you've all these, but I imagine the first time somebody said to you, hey, we're sending you to the Olympics and you're covering curling, you might've been like, really? Okay, time to hit Wikipedia. So anyway, and, and I am side, side note, really interested to hear how you trained up to learn enough about curling to speak about it really knowledgeably. But what I would like to ask each of you right now, uh, and Corey, I'm gonna start with you. When you need something certain that will delight and distract you, what do you turn to? Where do you reliably get that joy? One of my favorite things um, is reading biographies, but um, 
I, I really like reading biographies of saints because, you know, I went to Notre Dame. But Notre one thing Dame. About I was going to say, that's all Notre Dame. Yeah. <laughs> very Notre Dame. But They're the thing is, saints, saints have lived very crazy lives. Like, if you read about Joan of Arc, like, you know, as a teenager being able to win battles and lead people. And, I mean, it's just unbelievable. The, the duress, a lot of these women like St. Teresa of Avila were entrepreneurs. They were founders. They were building monasteries. Hildegard von Bingen was a polymath. She was writing spiritual work, chastising kings and popes. So, I mean, and she was writing like, you know, like scientific journals. So like, like the, these people are very fascinating people. Um, so they have very fascinating biographies. And there's like a through line with all of them, maybe because they're saints. Uh, but they, uh, they, they like really spend a lot of time in prayer. And that's kind of like, I think, taking Wire's point of like breath work to another level. You know, some people call it meditation, some people call it whatever. But um, I think it was like Desmond Tutu woke up at like 4.30 in the morning and just like spent time in prayer. Same with uh, um, Mr. Rogers from Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, Fred Rogers. He was actually an ordained minister and he saw his work at, in TV as, as missionary work. And like he spent every morning just in prayer and silence. And that then was the foundation to start his day. So whenever I need certainty and I need to, I, to be recharged, I wake up at like four in the morning before anything happens and I'm unreachable. And I literally just sit there and just get filled up in prayer. Thank you for sharing that. Samantha and I actually live in Mr. Rogers' neighborhood. He's from oh, really? where we are. Yep. And <laughs> wow. I was lucky enough to work on his show for a little while when I was in college and attend a wedding that he was the officiant for at our um, local, on, on the set of Mr. Rogers at our local PBS station. So he is near and dear to me. And I know he spoke a lot and often about how that was a practice of his. Uh, as an introvert, he said he needed that time to be able to be open uh, and, and extroverted for the children that he reached. Okay. To tie that back Wait. to what you had said earlier, Corey, is I, yeah. I think that, that that sitting in meditation and prayer is the preventative practice for when you're faced with that in uncertainty in the moment. I, I really believe that. Yeah. That's a great point of like, how do you train up for something that isn't with a ball or on a court or something where you can do calisthenics or find a YouTube video? So thank you for making that. Train, training your mind today. to be non-reactive. Yeah. Yeah. Where your time? What's your turn? What's something that really you can count on to bring you delight? Uh, 100% it is dancing. Uh, I love salsa dancing, Latin dancing. Um, and what I was thinking about this, why I love that, it's because it gets me out of my head and just fully into the present moment, into my body. I can't think about the things that are going on in my life. Uh, and I have to just fully show up in that in that moment. So it's, it's definitely dancing for me. Awesome. Samantha, what, what about you? What's definitely delightful for you? Definitely delightful. And in hearing you guys talk, it sounds like it's bits and pieces and I'm not even realizing it because I replay it back, but finding a great horizon line and just staring at it, just like finding just something pretty to look at and just focusing on it and trying to be still and quiet, which sounds just like meditation now that I'm saying it out loud. Um, and then in a pinch, the other thing would be listening to creators create and listening to their creative process. I also find very relaxing. Do you listen to the podcast, How I Built This? It's, a, it's in the set of things. Yeah. 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 I love that podcast. Anyway, um, for me, it's uh, nature photography, flowers, really colorful and, and very close up, like to you. And I think in the same way, right, to block out everything else and really focus on something that feels very beautiful to me and will change very quickly. I like that 
it's there at that moment. Uh, and so that's something that I can always go for a walk anywhere and find something growing that I can take a very close up picture of. And in framing that picture, and thinking about how to make people who are looking at it feel the way I feel at that moment, I find that that is guaranteed to be delightful for me. Thank you all so much. This has also been delightful for me. I've learned so much from you and I've really appreciated your generosity of time and the depth of your understanding of what, what this is about. So thank you so much. Thank you, Dr. G. We are taking a summer break because resilience requires rest. So have a wonderful July and August, and we will see you on Tuesday, September 26th for the next Resilience Think Tank. Thanks everyone.